The life and journey of an instructional coach may feel like a flashback to your teen years. Our world is shaped by interactions with others, and we are perpetually trying to find our way. The highs and the lows of our experience are often dictated by events or interactions not entirely under our control, and yet, we are always growing, even when we may not realize it. In this episode, The Guild will explore connections between the life of coaches and the teenage experience, and share the strategies we've uncovered that helped us evolve as people, learners, and professional collaborators. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Labrie. So a lot of shows have been made through the decades about teenagers, but none captured the joy, the awkwardness of growth, the struggles, and the internal reflections like mid-90s offering My So-Called Life. Perhaps we're dating ourselves a little bit here, but we see so many parallels between coaching and the teenagers of both my so-called life's fictional world and the real world. As coaches, we experience the peaks of joys when our work with clients and those we partner with have successes, and even more so with that chance encounter in the hallway near a teacher that could possibly lead to a budding connection. (laughs) Um, Our identity and how we relate to others is really of critical importance to our work, so much so that the Guild figured no better time than now to spend an episode sharing the dramas and internal myologues that make up my so-called coaching life. Our intention today is to explore the character struggle and the different roles a coach could play within a school system and articulate the shared experiences of coaches. We also intend to share strategies that have helped us grow in the face of the insecurities we might feel as coaches. So starting off here, just want to share a little quick musing here. I was a big fan of my so-called life back in the 90s. I love that show. What about you guys? I remember very little about the plot. I just remember sitting there being totally lost in the eyes of Jordan Catalano, a.k.a. Jared Leto. I would just like, oh, my God. I mean, who among us? (laughs) (laughs) So pretty. I know. Gorgeous. Well, yeah. I actually went back and watched a couple of clips from the show just to kind of remember what I'm talking about and make sure that our metaphor is square. Spoiler alert, it is. I I was watching a few of that, and here's a couple of things I was noticing. Like, First of all, they say like a lot. So if I'm hyper aware of my likes today, that explains it. But the other thing is plot-wise, content-wise, in terms of the things they're talking about and the way they capture that teenage experience and the way it feels to be growing and kind of turning that internal eye in on yourself all the time. That holds up. I remember the show being a critical darling for that exact reason. The experiences of Angela and her friends searching for their identity really defines that high school kind of experience in a way that nothing on TV had ever done by that point. I guess I'll own up to it. I never watched it, but I can tell you guys had older siblings. I'm the youngest, so of of the three of us. So, and being the oldest in my family, it wasn't a show that was on TV. But I'm no stranger to high school drama. So, being <laughs> being a teacher that has worked in a high school for over a decade, and also being a teenager at one point in my life, for sure. But really, I think that that is that central piece to it is the big drama of being a kid and being a kid on my so-called life or anywhere in in a high school locally or 
around the world is you are trying to figure out who you are. What is your identity? Right. That thought of when you get into a fight with your parents as an adolescent and you you scream out like, no one understands. You just don't understand me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but we, <laughs> we, we will often have that conversation as a guild. Do people actually understand what we do and what we're trying to do? And so I guess my question is this to both of you. What do you wish people knew about what we do as coaches? This one is kind of interesting. First of all, it sounds like a job interview question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. But second of all, I think when I'm trying to think about what I wish people knew about what I did, I have to go into what people don't know the most about what I do. And I think overall, I need to say that it's a service job. A lot of times when people hear coach, They think of a coach of athletics, somebody yelling at you or telling you what to do or molding people into something that they aren't already. And what I would say is the service of coaching and the act of coaching is really more based in taking something that already exists and helping encourage it. You feel a lot more like you're a gardener tending to baby plants than Mike Ditka screaming at the Chicago Bears. That's a very local reference, y'all. But (laughs) (laughs) we need to realize that coaching is an act of service and nurturing, not an act of forcing change. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind is, especially when you have the words technology associated with your title, we often are supporting tech fixes. Stuff is broken. Stuff is broken, fix it. And that is usually our in. That is our ticket to starting those initial connections and interactions with people. So it builds that trust. But I guess what I wish people really understood is that it's deeper than that. And the coaching work that we do It is a relatively newer type position that is still being molded and it'll look very different from one district to the other. But for the work that we do within our district is really that deep, meaningful, personal reflection that teachers don't get enough time to do unless they really have somebody, that think partner and somebody with the expertise instructionally to help them through that. And so that is something that I don't know if everyone gets yet. And I think we're still trying to figure that out. And how do we communicate that to administration and people that are thinking about this programming and the value to the work that teachers are doing for students? How does it help our teachers get better in their practice? For me, what I wish people knew, it's similar, Jenny, to what you said a second ago. It's that think partner One of the things I treasured when I was teaching full-time in the classroom was having that close colleague to brain smash with about a content lesson or about a parent issue or just someone to help not necessarily give advice, but help me process and think through my next steps or what steps could come next. I wish people knew that that is the benefit of having that coach. It's someone who is guided by, we've talked about this before, like that trusted peer. When you share something, it's held in confidence and treasured because that's what the rapport between a coach and a collaborator is all about or a teacher partner is all about. And I wish that people knew that that is something all three of us, at least in our current system, are really skilled at, really skilled at helping you hammer out and think about where do I want my kids to go and what may the next steps for me be, but ultimately give me as that teacher 
the choice as to deciding which path to take, which one best speaks to me and what I think my students' needs are. So it's not an elevator pitch, but just that Mm -hmm. thinking partner, that processing partner, and ultimately someone to be there with me to help me implement it. They often, it's that dorky TED-Ed video about it's not the first person who starts a movement, it's the second. That's what gives you the momentum and the desire and the accountability to move forward in a goal and start something awesome. That's what I wish people knew that a coach could be for a teacher or another sort of professional. You two were in a coaching position before I had been, and you both were my coach while I was in the classroom, while I was teaching full-time. And prior to working with the two of you, my work was very focused on my students as it should be. However, very isolating when you are on your own. Mm-hmm. But man, the doors open and my my practice completely blossomed when I recognize the value and like, hey, there's somebody that's actually around this building that's willing and has the time because most of your colleagues that are in classrooms as well don't have the time to sit down with you and really devote the think partner time you need. You guys did. And therefore, it was completely altering what I was able to do, what I was able to plan. It was just, it brought back the joy. It brought back Mm -hmm. the joy because I wasn't so overwhelmed because I had that partnership in both of you. I really love what you both are saying about that, not only because you're complimenting our coaching, Jenny, but but honestly, it's helping me connect some mental dots here. So when I'm talking about the nurturing and growth aspect of coaching, and you guys are talking about think partnership, I, I think one of the major things that we can come away with is this is something that coaching is something that you do with a teacher. You are partners. You do it together. It is not done to a teacher, nor does the teacher take control of this. It is done in complete partnership and solidarity and cooperation. I really like that point about coach having the time to devote work to you in the development of your goals, because I think that is one thing that we really want to make sure teachers know is we're going to try to do work to help you accomplish your goal. And we'll try to take a few things off your plate. All of us are in the practice of when we're coaching a teacher at the end of every conversation we have saying, what's your homework for us? What can we do for you or bring for you or research for you? What can we bring to the table to help move you closer to this goal next time we talk? And it's that, how can I help? That's the phrasing that I use with the people that I coach. How can I help? What can I do next time so that we can either make this time together that we have more beneficial or more useful? And I think that ties into that adolescent metaphor. When you're in high school, your friends really can be that family. And while we're not talking about friendships here, there are a lot of similarities between that coaching partnership and that teenage adolescent friendship that starts. It really is all about that relationship, that trust, and you feeling bonded over your shared values and shared experiences. The coach, what they can do for the teacher is also be that organizational element that they bring, like Emily, you mentioned the research, they can bring the best practice, they can do all of that thinking that lets the teacher do the really deep, important work with their students. And so that partnership is what makes the overall experience more impactful. Now, when we talk about our different sorts of identities as coaches, there are a myriad for 
each of us, when we stepped into this coaching role, we stepped into it at a different point or a different place. We mentioned a second ago, one of the types of coaches is the technology coach, the person to fix all the things. That's where I stepped into this district as that coach. But there are other types as well. Jenny, do you want to start by talking about some of the other types of coaches that we've run into as we've learned more and as we've connected with others? There have been so many different names. The word coach will be in there, but there's digital learning coaches or there's literacy coaches. Innovation coach, Innovation 21st coach. century learning there's, coach. Oh yeah. yeah, there's so many. There's so many <laughs> out there. And so there's some that are specialized in a certain area. For us, we've been taught to lean on the expertise of the teacher. So even though I've never taught math, I know how to coach a math teacher. They bring the expertise of the math to the table. But Emily, you can really talk about even just your own experience with the amount of titles you have carried within this role. Oh my gosh, you are not even kidding. So when I moved out of the library and into this role, I started out as a technology integration specialist. And then I became a technology integration coordinator. And then I would say that we were just in talks right around when we were in talks to hire Jenny to change the position title to something else because we were thinking, okay, we've been in one-to-one for a while and at some point the questions are going to taper off about how to use the iPad. So then we started kind of dabbling with the idea of instructional technology coach and that's kind of where we landed for now. And I just don't want to change my Twitter handle again, to be honest. So (laughs) I hope they stick with it. (laughs) So I know we've talked about already so far some of the criteria for what's an instructional, what are those principles, those guiding structures for what an instructional coach does. Emily, you mentioned choice or mandatory. There are different systems out there that are operating or using a coaching framework that either requires all teachers to have a coach through evaluation cycle or as part of tenure, but others like in our system are more choice-based. So if a teacher is looking to grow or enhance their practice in a specific area, one way they could do that is by partnering with a coach. What are some other principles or guiding criteria that you both have seen? You guys went deep on partnership and reciprocity. I'm mad quoting Jim Knight here. We were trained by Jim Knight, as we mentioned in one of our earlier episodes. So a lot of these partnership principles are going to come up in terms of how we relate to the teachers that we're talking to. So we want to make sure that there's an establishment that we are working as colleagues when we're doing a choice-based model. When you're doing the type of model that's more compulsory, I get the impression that there's a little bit of a like a sliding scale. What you're going to increase in is the numbers of participants, but in terms of the type of change you might see in different participants. I just can't imagine having as much time to devote to those people like you guys mentioned earlier. I wonder if everyone reaches that deep level of personalized growth and commitment to innovation and change and evolution when you have a compulsory program compared to a choice-based. Is it going to shift less to that self-actualized program to more checkbox? Like, yep, I met with my coach, done. So if any of you are out there who are in a mandatory or a compulsory coaching program, we'd love to hear your thoughts about it and what your story is to help us really dialogue. Yeah. 
that's not to say there aren't incredible coaches and really committed teachers in any type of coaching model that you would see. I would love to hear more from people of all kinds of different coaching models. And if there's one that we haven't even mentioned yet, throw it in there. I think something, Jenny, that you mentioned was really about while the goals are personally significant and valuable to the teacher, no matter what model, the student data component is really, really important. Well, because that's what's going to tell you if you've hit the goal. It's a critical piece to really see the impact that it has on your students. So one thing that we've worked really hard to figure out is how do we help teachers really solidify a specific goal that not only is powerful, emotionally compelling and meaningful to them, but how is it going to be measured in such a way that we can say, hey, we've hit this goal this has worked and we can move on to another one or something else that you have. That is the crux of it is really that goal and how do you measure? And it really comes down to the bottom line is what's the impact on students? Is it having the impact and the effect that you're hoping it will? That coach is there to help you stay on that path to help you realize that goal that you have initiated because it's hard to stay on that path even as coaches we're trained to keep those conversations in such a way that they stay on track and then how do we know that it worked Mm -hmm. how do we know that the work that we're doing the time that we're spending together is working right and emily another principle that i've often heard you reference that i think is worth our listeners hearing again is coaching lives in the land of the good Oh my gosh, yes. So this was sort of what I was trying to get at with my what I wish people knew about what you do. I think when a system sets up coaches as a fixer, so let's say makes it part of a remediation plan for a teacher who has not been finding success, that is the hardest type of coaching to do. And we've done all different types of coaching, but I think when we say coaching lives in the land of the good, coaching is intended to flame the fires of passion, to help teachers who are interested in something or questioning something or investigating something, take that to the level where there will be concrete connections, forward motion, and like Jenny said, that data-driven proof that something has changed and that it made a positive effect on the students and the way the students were instructed. However, trying to do that with someone who is frightened and trying to change everything all at once that level of emotional trust, of openness, and just of readiness, that's not there in the teacher participant. And even some of the best coaches in the world can maybe help somebody save their job. But in terms of that deep and impactful change that we strive for, it's not going to be that. It's going to be, what do I need to do to to be okay? You know, I think it's also important to mention, Emily, especially because we've experienced this to work in that type of fix it, like fix the teacher's problems, quote unquote issues. And really what I would caution anybody that's recommending a teacher work with a coach, if you are thinking that, also think of what the implications might be on the perception of your coaching program then. Because if you have somebody that's referring only the teachers that you would say in in your own personal opinion aren't doing a good job, then that perception of coaching in your building might then appear, if I'm getting coached, then I'm not doing a good job. Instead, we really want to see that, hey, if I'm working with a coach, 
that just shows that I have a high regard for my practice. I, I'm killing it. I'm doing a great job and I just want to get better. And that referral is crucial. Yeah. Coaching lives in the land of the good and intends to move good to great. We do not fix and we do not remediate. And I think that, like you said, Jenny, the impact that that mentality has on the ability to grow a coaching program and make coaching not just a norm but a plus part of your school's culture really that's like a huge integral part to having a school that does that so to our admin friends i would say if you can help your coaches keep coaching living in the land of the good elevating teacher practice that already exists taking good to great that's going to help your coaches coach and help your teachers be successful for the kids and we can help prove it. We often will say one of our partnership principles is confidentiality. When a teacher achieves success in a coaching cycle, that is their narrative to share, and we encourage them to share it. And it's much easier for teachers to feel safe to share those successes when it's not attached to that negative sort of, I was on a mediation plan, I got a coach, and I'm all good now. It's much easier for them to say, yeah, I was really looking at improving the way I use discourse with my students. And I worked with Jenny, and I could not believe the amount of discussion that my kids were having by the end. That word of mouth and that trust and that faith within that coaching program just escalates the way that others perceive the other coaches in that system. While we believe in confidentiality, we do want to bring coaching out of the shadows, but that's really the teacher's joyous celebration to share. And all of these identity pieces for our listeners out there, these have come to us over the course of our coaching experience, right? Like you don't wake up when you're in high school and freshman year and know exactly who you are. It takes that journey of time in order to establish those values and establish your identity. But I also think we want to reflect on where we've come, but also what are those overarching practices that we now have as a result of us identifying who we are And that leads me to my next question. Who do you want to be like when it comes to your coaching practice? So am I allowed to say you guys? Because, you know. (laughs) You stole mine. (laughs) I I mean, seriously, there is a reason why we have gilded together. That's a a verb, right? It is. Oh, we're making Um, it now. (laughs) We like to invent verbs. I, I think we tend to gravitate towards those who have qualities we wish to emulate. So I would say working with you guys has been an eye opener to me because the way you question people or the way you utilize your creativity or the way you even phrase certain elements of our job, like I'm not gonna lie, there's a couple of things you've even said in this episode that I'm like, I gotta steal that for when I'm talking about coaching with somebody. Your closest colleagues, hopefully, are people that you can learn from and want to emulate. The other thing I should maybe mention is, you know, throwback to episode one, those professional hall passes we mentioned. There are people whose, you know, establishment of different brands or types of coaching theory or methodology that you can put into practice really can be helpful. And if you can find one of those hall passes whose work makes it into your daily practice, that's sort of how you know you found one. So Jane Kesey, woot woot, here you go again. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this is fresh on my mind, but I'm just thinking about how many different models are out there, how many different coaches exist, and what can you learn from them? And and the more that you have in your repertoire, 
I think the better kick-ass coach you're going to be. So if you are only thinking of one particular model or one particular savior of this is how we're going to completely change education, that's great. And there are some awesome ones out there. But man, I just want to be a sponge and learn as much as I can from all of them and see what you can pull out. Because the more you have as you're working with a teacher, one model might work really better with a teacher than another and vice versa. So the more you can be fluent in many different coaching role models, I think the better. And then co-coaching is just something Emily and I have kind of happened upon just because of one we we love each other. <laughs> we are really like work, work wives. spouses. We yep, sure are. For sure. <laughs> but we just fell into that groove of as long as the teacher is okay with the both of us being there, we have grown so much in our practice being able to debrief afterwards. Like, how was my questioning there? What did I miss? Or what was the pivotal point in that conversation that really got that teacher to think deeply or meaningfully or whatever it might be without having that second coach there? You can still get really, really good at it, but there's that co-coaching that we've been able to completely, I think, deepen my practice because I have somebody there helping me reflect. For sure. And I want to add to that just slightly, and I will actually share one of our major norms that we do with this, and that is collaborate where you can, separate where you must. So when we have the opportunity to co-coach, and the teacher is comfortable with that situation and wants to talk to both of us, that usually is the case. We do. And I think it makes our practice a little more transformative faster because we do have that, Mm -hmm. not just that constant self-reflection, but that constant growth partner. Every interaction we have with a teacher, we are completely focused on coaching that teacher, but we always can take a couple of minutes after that and coach each other's coaching. And it makes us better, faster to have that partner in partnership. Awesome. I've gotten a couple of little moments over the past couple of weeks where I've been able to do that with one or both of you. Highly recommend connecting with a coach. And even for if you don't have that capacity, I've done this myself after a training. If the teacher is comfortable, videotape yourself coaching so that you can help see what your reality is with your practice as a coach. And if you can find a think partner to help you review it, that can be really helpful too. One thing we haven't talked about yet that it involves improving your practice as a coach, but also ties back to our high school metaphor, would be clicks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the hardest things, as a person who came into our system, our district, brand new, one of the biggest challenges I faced personally was quote unquote, making friends, (laughs) finding bids, determining and seeing where the teacher clicks are. Because we know if you work in really any professional office or any building, it has its own culture and they have their own clicks. What are some suggestions you have for dealing with clicks when you're a coach? One of the things that you can do, and again, this is going to sound so high school because, and I work in a high school, like (laughs) one of the things you want to do is be seen. So Jenny and I joke around that sometimes we're going fishing and we go to more public areas of the school. Nowadays in 2021, we're doing it with our masks and we're like six feet away from each other. But we go to areas of the school where we are not normally found to try to run into different people, different faces, ask how things are going for them. No real agenda to start coaching those people unless something comes up that they're excited about. But just how's things going for you? How's your 
how's that new class that you're teaching going this year? Everything good? Awesome. So glad to hear it. Or they say, you know what I was meaning to ask you about? Mm-hmm. And that's when you're like, yes, I'm in. You have a moment to connect with people just by having your place in the hallway. I'm thinking about those locker scenes or the, I think they're even bathroom scenes in my so-called <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah, they. you have some places that you are always found but you also have some places that you go to be found or to be seen and that is one way to bust out of your routine and not break into other cliques but I actually don't think that a a coach really wants to be in a clique do they I think Mm -mm. you kind of got to be a floater right you want to be that high schooler that everybody likes that you can fit in and morph to any and get along with the jocks you can get along with the chess club you can get along with the theater kids and the the musicians but that you know that really goes into knowing your personalities which i've learned a lot from emily you've talked about it in other episodes with just you know, all of the keezy work is knowing different personalities and being able to relate to them is an important thing that we want to do mm-hmm. and even taking the time to have that slow start or that small talk and if you're able to at least this worked for me when I was starting fresh, because you rarely can walk into a new situation and know who your people are, right? I would try to have small talk conversations with people like, oh, how's your weekend? And then I'd, I'd tuck something away before I had kids and had more brain capacity, tuck it away and remember to ask that person about that thing that I tucked away the next time I saw them, remembering to leave that time to Get to know who people are can really, like you said, be helpful in becoming the floater. In high school, I was never the floater. I had my clique. I had my niche, but I liked... What was your niche? I was a theater dork. (laughs) (laughs) And again... You were a thespian. That's awesome. A thespian, yes. And, And that only happened my junior and senior year. Uh, Before that, I just, it was like a small little niche of not super popular smart people, the B list or the C list celebrities. I had my group of eight and we were all in the arts. We loved the arts, whether that was band or orchestra or choir and plays and stuff. Well, it's interesting because as an adolescent, you are you're trying to figure out yourself. And in high school, I was a part of one, one click. I was part of the athletes. As you get older, you realize the value of being able to morph and know people. That's good for coaching, no doubt, but it's just plain being a good person. Right. Being, that's good for leadership. That's good for so many things. Good advice in life. Emily, what click were you in? Well, I was probably more of a floater, I guess. I was, it's weird because I was a theater kid. I was in the improv troupe, not very good at it. And I was also a JV soccer player and in bands. So I kind of straddled a couple different worlds. I had my soccer peeps and my bando theater geeks. And we had a lot of fun with both of those groups, I guess. But it was weird. I kind of had an inner and rings of circles of people I liked. And I had a lot of friendly acquaintances and a few close friends throughout high school. But I would really say that in terms of lasting relationships, not a lot, but in terms of people that I knew and thought fondly of, quite a few. And I think that I was sort of learning to float even back then. I was... That makes sense then, Emily, why you're so relatable and why you have so much to teach us on personalities, personality (laughs) types and relationships. That's so nice of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last thing, just when it comes to growing up, whether you're an adolescent or a coach, is figuring out what do you want to be and who you want to be? And we've already mentioned when we started out as coaches, there were different hats that we wear. 
And Jenny, you mentioned absorbing, being a sponge, right? Taking whatever we can from anybody. Joellen Killian and Cindy Harrison have written a book called Taking the Lead, and it's all about breaking apart different facets of what a coach could do. And they, in their work, have listed a number of different coaching roles. Data coach, resource provider, mentor, curriculum specialist, classroom supporter, school leader, innovator, all of these different things. And knowing and being able to articulate can really impact and help you determine as a coach what you want to be when you grow up. Well, first of all, I love the metaphor connection there. I just think of like a teenage kid at the mall just trying on every different look like, okay, this day I want to have this look or this day I want to be like this. You know, I don't have a ton of personal style as we talked about in the Make It Work episode, but every person sort of just thinks in their head, this is the look I need to have or this is what I need to do to fulfill this role or to do this type of work. So that is not just connected to the metaphor, but really helps me realize that there's a different skill set and set of study and practice. And where I mentioned that change that you can get from co-coaching when I was talking about Jenny and I working together, but the way your practice shapes, you're technically trying to get better at anywhere from three to 10 different things, Mm -hmm. depending on who you're coaching and what you're coaching on. The other thing I really liked is that in that list of things that you mentioned, you had put continuous learner on there. Mm -hmm. And the reason I like that one so much is, I think in this kind of bridges back to clicks too, is that's one way you can really connect with the teachers to ask them to help you. Right. I'm still learning as a coach. I'm trying to get better at this. Can you help me? Can we work together at a little higher capacity or maybe a little more frequently to try to help me blank? You can send out that bid and it puts a teacher in a position of power and the ability to help. They know that their coaching isn't just this is something that you need and I'm doing it for you, but this is something we both need. It's that shared vulnerability. Yeah, for sure. Oftentimes when you're Coaching a teacher, you're asking them to be vulnerable and just asking that question about, hey, I'm trying to improve my practice. Can you help me? You're being vulnerable. Yeah, the chameleon is something that you want to embody and you want to be an authentic, genuine person. It's not necessarily a tone of you're just going to change who you are and what you are to who you're working with just to manipulate, but more so to really relate. That the other thing that has been really helpful for us is to identify that there is really deep coaching and then there's surface level coaching and then there's a spectrum Mm -hmm. that goes from one end to the other of the types of interactions you're having with people you're not going to have a home run especially in a choice-based model as we mentioned before you're not going to have that deep level coaching with every single person you have that that was something that I needed to learn I don't know about you guys that I wanted to hit a home run every single time with every single teacher and that really wears you down when that teacher might be ready to collaborate but they're really not ready yet to really do some of that transformative work. Coaching starts and ends on teacher time. We've always said that's one of our norms. And so we analyze the types of interactions we're having in order to help ourselves grow in our practice. So we're doing a lot of collaborative coaching right now. How do we help this particular person we're working with get to a deeper level of thinking? How do we get them to something that's more of a outlined goal? So that has really helped ground me in almost giving some grace to myself when it's not necessarily a deep Mm -hmm. cycle every single time. 
Yeah, and I really like what you said there about it not being a thing intended to manipulate. And the idea of moving a teacher, again, this is, it's not really you're mm-hmm. you're trying to get a teacher to move. You're trying to help the teacher move themselves. So it comes from this place of empathy and understanding and really looking for when is their time and what do they need and what are their feelings. And that's what helps you move things forward with people. But really it is like, a deepening friendship, the high school metaphor mm-hmm. and all, you know, sorry, uh, token jock, I'm getting away from our, uh, no problem. our sports metaphors here. So let's talk about some key takeaways, things that we want our listeners to kind of tuck in the back of their minds or their back pocket if they find themselves. And if you're not a coach and you're listening to us, these are still things that you can apply if you're an instructional leader, a PLC leader, or you're just in a team-based model in your school and looking to help be a support or wear a coaching hat for the group that you work with. First thing that Jenny just mentioned is to do your research and determine your values, simply writing them down. That's one thing our team did after we participated in our training. We actually wrote down what our values were and use them frequently to kind of dictate our norms and set the rules for our practice, which in turn will help your teachers identify them and see them happening as you're operating. Jenny, what's another one of our big takeaways? Asking questions. You cannot ask enough questions. When you're doing that work, and if you get stuck, revert back to a question. Seek to understand with whoever you might be working with. And those questions are really going to shed light on where to go next, especially if you're in that limbo Emily, what about you? What's that takeaway? So I think, once again, that idea of considering all of the roles, start to look into and articulate, be able to tell people what the many roles are that you do, because there always are going to be some people who don't understand even one thing that a coach could do, much less seven. So you need to be able to talk about what those different roles are. And like Jenny had said earlier, maybe start sorting through those roles or the type of coaching interactions that you have with people and determining some sort of way of what is a level of depth on that. Was it one of the more surface interactions or was it more leading towards transformational change or somewhere in the middle? And use that. Start looking at that and not to use one of our previous dirty words data, but taking some data on what you're learning about yourself as a coach to help you grow in goal set. That's your internal monologue at work helping you get better. And we've said this before, it's the connection finding ways of building authentic, empathetic connections with staff, with teachers, with principals, with students, any opportunities you have to go fishing to make yourself visible and be a part of that community is really going to build your street cred up in your system and encourage people to make a bid and to invite you into their their world. Are we ready for fun? Mm -hmm. Ready for a game, guys? Okay, so uh, this week's Most Likely 2 has a teenage edition spin on it, given our high school metaphor and my so-called life connections this week. So first question, which one of us is most likely to have sported the grunge look? Emily. (laughs) Emily. (laughs) Emily. (laughs) 
I was big on, <laughs> I was huge on flannel. I loved flannel. My dad had old flannels from like the 60s Real and retro. 70s that were already nice. soft and they were huge on me. So you could wear like a band t-shirt or even when like littler baby t-shirts in like the later 90s, early O's were a thing. You could still put a flannel over that and be kind of comfortable, even though you're still doing the other thing. It was great. Bigger jeans. We didn't know how lucky we had it, man. We could just hide in our clothes. It was so awesome. <laughs> Within the past probably five years, I just got rid of my last flannel that I had from back in those days. I had used it, kind of repurposed it to color my hair. <laughs> it was time to go. And it finally fell apart after so when we're go. talking about flannel, I'm hearing I was most likely, but I guess we've got a second place contender here, it sounds <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. I had one, exactly what you were describing. It was soft. It was comfortable. It oh, was God. blue and gray. Oh, and it looked great on me. <laughs> Loved yeah. it. And you had to have loved the converse, it, right? Oh, yep. I, I, I was not a converse. converse. I was. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Grunge look. <laughs> I had so many pairs of chucks. And my mom used to work for converse before I was You're born. And up. I was so mad that she left that job prior to having kids. I was like, come on, mom. I could have had all the free chucks. All right. Uh, which of us is most likely to have had the most embarrassing Casey. 90s bedroom? You were Casey. talking about Jared Leto. <laughs> come on. We just heard Tell you us. the opener. Tell us your posters. Tell oh us one of my your God. Okay, so didn't have a my so-called life poster. But I, yeah, I probably was the most embarrassing. I had the Jonathan Taylor Thomas home improvement voice. <laughs> <laughs> I had new kids on the block bed sheets. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely, I was hoping to keep nope, that very Nope, it's outed. You're never down. living that down. <laughs> nope. <laughs> And now it's <laughs> out on the internet for everyone. <laughs> I was about to dive deeper into a shame spiral, but I'm not going to because, like yep. you said, on the internet. But yes, I love it. Definitely, <laughs> probably me then. Which of us is most likely to have overused the word like? So, so here's what I want to say. I want to say it's Jenny because she chooses her words now so carefully. So was there a crisis moment, a hinge point moment where she had this like, oh my God, I'm overusing never, it too much. And now never. she, now she, not that I, maybe, maybe never, yeah. other so people would have said differently, say, but no, there was, I, I've always been a little bit of a pauser. Let's think before I talk. So I know, which <laughs> I wish it was that, but I would then have to say yeah. Emily again. It was probably me. Again, yeah, so we outed do Casey it. with the most swearing I have to edit out. And so, Emily, yeah, you probably have the most likes to edit out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said I was hyper aware of them this episode. And I think I just yeah. overused um instead of like. You, saw, you swap <laughs> I can't help it. It just comes up. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's just a thing. I think I'm the most 90s person of all of us. Well, have you given away that you're the oldest yet? No, but you're the oldest of I'm the not, three I'm of us. Kid. <laughs> no, you're the oldest of us. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's that. Yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm 38. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Yep. I was prime teenager in the 90s. I was ready for my so called life and all the grunge and all the things we had. We had uh, the Nirvana and Green Day posters, too, by the way. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about that. that was fun, guys. Uh, we'll have to yeah. maybe we have to pick another decade sometime. <laughs> we got to figure this out with our oh. metaphors. All right. Queen of metaphors is on it. All right. Taste yeah, of what's so we've to got, come for next uh, week. The other F word. And this one is related not to what you're thinking, but 
failure. And how does the guild work through failures? What have been some of our failures? What are some recommendations about risk taking and being willing to take that risk, even if you might fail? And that's the next one coming up. And then after that, we're talking about the PLC traffic jam. So we worked and we talked a lot about working individually one-on-one with teachers. However, there are also some things we can talk to about working with different groups and professional learning communities. And the metaphor there is a a traffic jam. You've probably, if you've been an educator in a PLC, you know the strengths and the weaknesses and the challenges that you face in a PLC. And so we're going to dive a little bit deeper on that one coming up. So can't wait. Thanks for sticking with us. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It is our sincerest hope to advocate for adult learners, and we aim to contribute to this community with genuine conversations about education, leadership, and topics that matter to you. If you'd like to connect, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com, on Twitter, at GroundedLGuild, at CVeacher, at TechCoachM, and at Jenny Labrie, using the hashtag GLGPodChat. We believe in the power of feedback. It helps us to keep growing and allows us to bring you quality and customized content. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for joining us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode of the Grounded Learners Guild. See you at the next Guild meeting. And in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.